If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. This episode originally aired on our Patreon. We will be back with brand new episodes soon. Thank you for your patience as Josh heals from heart surgery. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. I lived, learned, and loved my way across Burbank, California for the first 27 years of my life, before moving to Portland, toiling for what felt like eternity, and finally emerging from my filthy chrysalis as the bald, bearded daddy you hear before you. (laughs) I love knowing where you've grown from. (laughs) (laughs) This is my own hometown story. Go Bulldogs! Burbank, located in Southern California's San Fernando Valley, contains the headquarters for Walt Disney Studios, Warner Brothers, Cartoon Network, Insomniac Games, and Nickelodeon. It also has the largest IKEA in the United States, and I can attest that it is friggin' huge. Fun fact, Tim Burton based the neighborhood in Edward Scissorhands on Burbank. Second fun fact, Timmy B was not a fan of Burbank, with his depiction of the city as a lifeless, pastel, cookie-cutter suburban helltown, which it is, but it also has a great movie theater. In March of 1953, Iris Souter, 41, had been in Burbank visiting her mother for the past month and had returned to New York just the week before when the phone rang. It was the police, delivering tragic news. Mabel Monahan, Iris's mother, was dead, the victim of a homicide. Mabel Marr was born in Idaho in 1888. As a young woman, she broke into vaudeville as both a palm reader and roller skating performer. She sounds pretty cool. And in February of 1908, married another performer. George S. Monahan, and began a career as a touring roller skating duo. The dream. What does that even entail? Like I music picture, and dancing. I on picture America's skates? Got Talent, like yeah, just going in circles. That could be kind of fun to see on a weekend, you know, a little outing, some family fun. Yeah, <laughs> performing skate stunts and wearing quote very elaborate costuming. George and Mabel performed on the Orpheum circuit which was a vaudeville and movie theater chain that operated from 1886 to 1927 when it was merged with RKO, the company that went on to produce Citizen Kane and the original King Kong. Their roller skating feats included hurdle jumping and an impressive bit where they would skate atop rolling wooden barrels. In one portion of their act, George would set up to swing Mabel around by his jaw and with a little sleight of hand would swap his Mabel out for a dummy, a much lighter option with which they ably fooled their audiences. Wow. I like the barrel idea. I need to see this. treacherous. In November of 1908, the couple sailed for England, 
afterward traveling across the UK and Europe until the Monahans gave birth to a daughter, Iris, on March 27, 1911, in London, England, after which the family moved back to the States. George Monahan died in 1940, and Mabel retired from the business after a car accident left her unable to perform. Their daughter Iris eventually moved to Las Vegas and married a man named Luther B. Shearer, known as Tudor. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's T-U-T-O-R, like a, like a school tutor. Tudor, whose middle initial stood for Bacon, was born in Wisconsin in 1885 and grew up in Los Angeles, becoming a man of many interests. He had established a chain of cigar stores, worked as a racetrack bookmaker, and ran a prosperous real estate business. Shearer's nickname emerging as a result of, quote, overly enthusiastic third-base coaching while playing baseball as a youth. By 1918, Tudor was employed as a cameraman in Hollywood, and by 1925 he had established gambling rooms in the Palm Springs Hotel and Western Athletic Club in Los Angeles, as well as running one of the largest bookmaking operations in the city. In 1927, Shearer created a first-of-its-kind floating casino barge, known as Barge C-1, installing it off the California coast between Santa Monica and Venice. It was raided and shuttered almost immediately by sheriff's deputies after their discovery that it was a den of illegal gambling activity. Tudor, along with two other prominent gamblers, later opened the Pioneer Club Casino in Las Vegas, at the corner of First and Fremont, which butts right up against the Fremont Street Experience, featuring the stunning Viva Vision light show and the music of Shakira, the Chainsmokers, and Imagine Dragons. <laughs> which starts at the top of the hour nightly from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And if you want to take your Fremont Street experience to the next level, literally, you may. Because for only $39, you could take a ride on the Slotzilla Zipline, a 30-second, 35-mile-per-hour long ways under the 1,700-foot-long canopy shaft thrill ride of the Fremont Street experience, featuring the stunning Viva Vision Light Show from Thursday through Sunday, 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. No flip-flops. By the way, that zipline is hella fun. It is fun. It's very cheesy. You're like just right above the crowd. I hope you're wearing an appropriate outfit because they don't care if you are or not. No but ladies. I went through all the phases of like what the hell is happening from fun to I could die. I could splat on the ground and all those children would be scarred for life. Like I because I'm afraid of heights. You know, I don't oh, think I am. And then I and am. Then you do it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I barely recommend it. Tudor Shearer really loved getting married. He was wed a total of four times, with one marriage ending when he was shot in the leg by his then-wife, after he was caught in bed with another woman. He was 73 and had been married to Mabel Monaghan's daughter, Iris Souter, his junior by decades. They had divorced at some point in the late 1940s, and the settlement between them included both cash and real estate, specifically the house in Burbank, California, Iris and Tudor had shared. The house was, and still is, located at 1718 Parkside Drive in Burbank, just seven blocks from Walt Disney Studios. Mabel Monahan, now 64, retired and widowed, moved in along with her Labrador, Ziggy, after the home was deeded to her by her daughter Iris, who loved the house and absolutely could not let it go when she moved to New York to remarry. After a car accident, Mabel was now, quote, partially disabled, often moving about the white ranch-style home using a cane to aid her mobility. Mabel Monahan and Tudor Shearer remained friends after he and her 41-year-old daughter's divorce. I imagine their both being born in the 1880s gave them tons to talk about. At one point, she even cared for him while he was sick for several months. This closeness resulted in rumors that Tudor kept a stash of cash in the Burbank home, or several stashes, as many claimed. I'm sure the amount grew as the story was passed criminal to criminal across the underworld until they one day hit Jack Santo's ears 
and a deadly plan began to formulate. Jack Santo, 48, was described as a, quote, beefy man with dark, wavy hair, glasses, and a violent past. In the 1930s and 40s, he'd been arrested for suspicion of kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and attempted murder. The home invasion and murder of Mabel Monahan occurred on the night of March 9th, 1953. The night before, Mabel attended her weekly poker game with some of her lady friends. Leslie, a friend who had given her a ride home the night before, called Mabel at 7 p.m. on the 9th. They spoke shortly, with Monahan detailing her dinner and plans to read a mystery novel until turning in early for the night. Mabel Monahan's body was discovered by her gardener, Mitchell Truesdale, as he arrived for his regular appointment with Mabel's yard, a little after 11 a.m., he noticed the home's exterior lights were still lit and the curtains drawn across the windows. Noticing the front door was ajar, he knocked. Receiving no answer, he moved inside, noting the ransacked nature of the interior. Furniture was turned over, drawers hung out of place, the carpet ripped up and the walls and baseboards peppered with holes and gouges. It was clear the motive was robbery, and the loot they were searching for must have been quite valuable because the house was completely torn apart. As the gardener moved further into the house, he saw blood, a lot of blood, spattered on a wall partition. Seeing that, he ran from the house and called the Burbank Police Department, which dispatched an officer within minutes. The responding officer and Truesdale then went into the house together, discovering Mabel Monahan lying face down in the hallway, partially inside a closet, with her hands tied behind her back and a bloody pillowcase partially covering her head. There was also a piece of cloth cinched around her neck, the same cloth used to bind her hands. Luckily, Mabel's Labrador Ziggy was unharmed, though he'd been outside since the evening of the 9th and was found whining patiently at the home's back door. The one crime scene photo I have seen shows the true brutality inflicted upon Mabel Monahan. The shot is black and white and framed low, showing an investigator crouched over the body. The arms are cinched tightly behind her back. The face and head were beaten, bloody, swollen, and fractured. The clothing and the sheet beneath the body are doused in blood. Mabel's face appears frozen in endless agony. It was a terrible death. The police built their case for the next three weeks, making sure they were compiling enough evidence that the charges would stick once their subjects were identified and arrested. Mabel Monahan's funeral took place on March 19th, 10 days after her murder. And a week after that, March 26th, police made five arrests in connection with the homicide case. Those taken into custody were longtime criminal subjects, with three being associated with infamous L.A. crime boss Mickey Cohen. Only one of the five arrested turned out to be of value, that of a 43-year-old safecracker named Baxter Shorter, whose criminal record reached back to 1927. Shorter made a statement to police on March 31st. His motivation was the $5,000 reward Mabel Monahan's daughter Iris had established for information that brought her mother's killer to justice. On April 12th, deep-sea scrap salvage diver John True, 38, was arrested and questioned by police. He was brought in due to his relationship with Jack Santo. He claimed to know nothing of the crime, though, and that his relationship with Jack Santo was only focused on good times and hunting. The next day, April 13th, an article in the San Francisco Examiner stated that a, quote, suspect was being held in the Monaghan murder and hinted that other suspects had been identified. Without evidence to hold him, John True was released April 15th, with no charges filed. Investigators had nothing concrete. Yet. That article was accurate. Police had multiple suspects. Emmett Perkins, 45, ran an illegal gambling room in El Monte, California, 13 miles east of Los Angeles. He had done time for auto theft and robbery, 
first-degree robbery and a parole violation. He didn't have a, quote, long, dour horse face, but he was described as having, quote, jug ears, a sallow, pockmarked complexion, and a receding hairline. What's a jug ear? Just just big ears. Like oh. Alfred E. Newman, the oldest reference I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of that that cartoon cover, Mad Libs or whatever. Not Mad Libs, Mad oh, Magazine. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's him. <clears throat> cool. Oh, look at that. <laughs> it landed. <clears throat> yeah. He and Jack Santo were known criminal associates, and both were good suspects, as they were the main suspects in the 1951 Northern California killing of a gold miner and the 1952 murder of a grocer and his entire family. Another member of the ragtag gang was Barbara Graham, 29, who had three sons and had been married four times, with each marriage being the initial act in an attempt to live a, quote, normal domestic life as a wife and mother. But those confines never suited her, as she had grown up with a teenage mother who consistently placed her in the care of others so she could go live her life. As a result, Barbara ran free and became a breaker of any rule meant to constrain her. Trauma being generational and all, Barbara slipped into the same shoes her mother had worn, those of a, quote, good-time girl and absentee parent. Under examination at the California School for Girls, test results revealed an IQ of 114 and that she had, quote, psychopathic tendencies, that led to delinquency. Graham had been in state care for much of her life, having spent years in a Ventura, California reform school, as well as serving a year in the San Francisco County Jail for providing a false alibi. Her crimes had been nonviolent and relatively minor, a young woman surviving as she had to, and that remained true until she entered the orbit of Emmett Perkins. In March of 1953, Barbara was working as a shill at Emmett Perkins' gambling parlor, a shill is someone employed by the establishment whose job it is to influence marks to place larger and larger wagers. At the end of the night, Barbara would earn either a tip from the man's winnings or a cut of his losses from the house. Barbara and Emmett were partners in both shilling and love. They were an official couple, with Barbara shacking up with Perkins after abandoning her infant son and husband Henry at home. Baxter Shorter, the safecracker who admitted to being present during the murder and attempted robbery of Mabel Monahan was kidnapped from his home at gunpoint on April 14th. His wife, Olivia, identified Emmett Perkins and Jack Santo as the abductors. In an interview, an officer involved with the case said, quote, We'll sure as hell find this guy dead someplace. Those men didn't just take him out to talk. Baxter Shorter's body was never found. Police wanted Jack Santo and his associates for the murder of Mabel Monahan. Santo, Perkins, and Graham had been laying low together since the night of Mabel Monahan's murder. More specifically, Santo and Perkins had been laying low, and Graham had been seen around town acting casually, as if she weren't wanted for murder. On or around April 24th, Graham was spotted and trailed by four undercover policewomen as she perused a downtown shopping district. They lost her but maintained surveillance at that location in hopes Barbara would return, which she did 10 days later. On May 4, 1953, Santo, Graham, and Perkins were arrested after Barbara was followed by undercover officer Kay Sheldon to the Linwood apartment they were using as a hideout. Sheldon called for backup, with 16 officers responding from multiple police departments and surrounding the building. They were taken into custody peacefully, then interrogated for seven hours before being booked into the Los Angeles County Jail. On May 14th, another witness, 
William J. Upshaw, made a statement to police. He had ridden along with Perkins, Santo, and Graham when they cased Mabel Monahan's home the night before the murder. He had driven from Mexico to Los Angeles and voluntarily surrendered to detectives and was the first to testify before the grand jury. According to his testimony, Upshaw was part of the original four-person team that was going to pull off the robbery, but he had backed out once they'd named their mark because he had no interest in stealing from Tudor Shearer, a prominent man with heavy Las Vegas connections. Based on the findings of the grand jury, Barbara Graham, John True, Jack Santo, and Emmett Perkins were indicted on charges of murder, robbery, and conspiracy to commit burglary. The defendants would be tried jointly. District Attorney Ernest Roll prosecuted the case, which began on August 14, 1953, and lasted five weeks. John True flipped and became a witness for the prosecution in exchange for his charges being dropped. Not wanting another Baxter Shorter vanishing witness situation on their hands, police guarded True 24 hours a day until he gave his testimony. True testified that, before the crime, Santo had warned him, quote, If they catch you, you die. If you squeal, you die. The group had cased the home multiple times before the murder, with the last instance taking place before sunrise on the morning of March 9th, the day Monaghan died. Santo believed the house would be vacant, and if it was not, the dame, Barbara, would go to the front door and get the occupant to open it with some kind of ruse. According to testimony from the since-vanished and almost definitely dead Baxter Shorter and still-alive-and-guarded John True, they had both been there the night of March 9th, 1718 Parkside Drive, Mabel's house, waiting outside in a car. Both Shorter and True said Barbara approached the front door, which was partially obscured from the street by a vine-covered trellis. She knocked, then explained through the door that she was having car trouble. When Mabel Monahan unlatched and cracked the door open, Santo and Perkins rushed inside, followed by Barbara Graham. One of the men inside gave the all-clear, and John True headed in, followed by Baxter Shorter a few minutes later. True testified that as he entered the home, he saw Barbara Graham strike Mabel Monahan multiple times with a gun. Baxter Shorter saw the ex-Vaudevillian homeowner on the floor, bound and bloody. The floor surrounding Mabel was saturated with her blood, and True watched Santo and Perkins cover Mabel's head with a pillowcase, tie her hands behind her back, and drag her off. He then heard the sound of her being struck again in another room. After ransacking the house, they found no money or anything of real monetary value, though police later found $14,000 worth of jewelry in a purse in a closet. The group left the home and split up after 20 minutes of searching and finding nothing worth taking. Emmett Perkins, Jack Santo, Barbara Graham, and John True returned to their de facto headquarters, Perkins' gambling room in El Monte. Baxter Shorter left the Burbank home and went his own way, stopping to telephone an ambulance to be dispatched to possibly save the woman's life. But he failed to name Burbank as the location, so the ambulance was unable to find the address, which left Mabel Monahan's body laying undiscovered for two days. It was clear both Baxter Shorter and John True had no problem casting themselves as unknowing bystanders and the rest of their gang as Mabel Monahan's killers. Shorter's testimony remained the same throughout the trial because he had been kidnapped and was definitely dead in a ditch somewhere. But the details of True's story wavered throughout his testimony. He hadn't seen Barbara with a gun minutes before she was alleged to have beaten Monaghan with one. He testified Barbara had used her right hand during the attack, even though she was a lefty. One of the more notable discrepancies between the statement he gave during his initial arrest and interview and his testimony during trial was the changing detail that Graham either had or had not helped him wash blood from his pants after the crime. Statements provided by Baxter Shorter and John True cast Graham as the aggressive party during the murder and they may have been accurate. 
I can see someone with a history and mother like Barbara had taking out the rage she contained on Mabel, who might have reminded her of her own mother. I can also see Perkins and Santo, both wanted and eventually convicted for several other murders not related to Mabel's, having no problem silencing a critically injured woman who had seen at least some of the gang's faces. The coverage of the trial focused almost solely on Barbara Graham, who had previously been convicted of prostitution, perjury, and forgery. Her looks, her clothes, her posture, her brown hair, which was always listed incorrectly as blonde or redhead, and always accompanied by words regarding her physical appearance and truculent attitude. Everything about Barbara was twisted to fit the narrative of a scorpion woman, looking for a sucker to con and then sting if things went south. Barbara was put on the stand and testified that she knew the other defendants, but she had not been with them on March 9th. She'd been at home with her young son and husband, Henry Graham, a known heroin user. Mr. Graham gave testimony at the trial which was, quote, both vague and contradictory to Barbara's statements. Fun fact, Barbara Graham lived in Tonopah, Nevada with her third husband from 1949 to 1950. If you recall, Tonopah is a major location mentioned in my previous episode, Catching Cletus, Part 1. It's actually how I found this case. I was browsing the Tonopah Wikipedia pages list of notable people and clicked Graham's name. Read Burbank, California in the description of the crime. Beepity-boopity, here we are. Jury deliberated for five hours and 20 minutes. Graham, Perkins, and Santo were found guilty and sentenced to death in the gas chamber at San Quentin. After the verdict was read, Barbara was heard saying to her attorney, quote, As long as they found me guilty of something I didn't do, I'd rather take the gas chamber than life imprisonment. Perkins, being escorted out of court, commented to reporters, quote, It's a lot of bullshit. It's phony all the way through. District Attorney Roll said, quote, This jury is to be congratulated. Maybe this will stop some of this foolishness around here. Jack Santo and Emmett Perkins were executed at San Quentin on the same day, June 3rd at 2.30 p.m. Quote, They slept soundly, ate heartily, and joked irreverently as they went to the gas chamber. Their bodies went unclaimed after their executions and were cremated at the Napa State Hospital and buried in the Napa State Hospital plot, a mass grave with no individual markers. Barbara Graham, who was also scheduled to be executed on June 3rd, was granted two stays of execution in the hours before she died. The initially set time of 10 a.m. was pushed back to 10.45, then 11.30, when the act took place. Barbara didn't want to see the witnesses outside of the gas chamber, and she requested a blindfold, receiving her prison nurse's sleep mask instead. Finally, she was led to the chamber where, quote, the cyanide pellets dropped at 11.34 a.m., Again and again, she gasped until her head pitched forward for the last time. She died at 11.42 a.m. Her husband, Henry Graham, claimed her body. Articles printed in the days after Graham's execution never failed to mention her, quote, crimson lips, the shape of her now-dead body, and that she, quote, looked pretty in her beige suit. Quote, Only a few friends and Henry Graham attended Barbara's funeral and burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery in San Rafael on June 6th. Graham had requested that it be kept small and private. None of her sons attended. Three-year-old Tommy, in fact, had already forgotten her, Henry Graham told a reporter. A film based on Barbara Graham's version of events, as told through letters written to journalist Ed Montgomery by Graham while in prison, was produced, starring Susan Hayward. The film is titled I Want to Live and was released in 1958 to mostly favorable reviews. The film's point of view is skewed, to say the least relying only on Graham's version of events, 
which absolves her of any guilt. Susan Hayward plays the part as an innocent woman, a survivor, who merely fell in with the wrong crowd, and unfortunately the viewer isn't allowed to witness any version of the crimes that led to Barbara's execution, as that would have drained any sympathy the filmmakers had instilled in earlier scenes. I believe the most notable aspect of I Want to Live is the lengthy sequence which details the prison guard execution team performing a practice run with the gas chamber. Each step the guards take, from the gloves they don to handle the cyanide pellets, to the clunk and clang of each lever that is pulled, it is painstakingly performed. And it is difficult to watch an employee, a guard, getting paid to prepare a death chamber. Susan Hayward won an Academy Award for Best Actress for the role of Barbara Graham. Journalist Ed Montgomery, whose writings were used in the production of the film, always believed Emmett Perkins to be Mabel Monaghan's killer. Two weeks before his execution, Emmett Perkins told Montgomery that Mabel Monaghan had been beaten with her own cane before being strangled to death. Montgomery noted the shape of Monaghan's wounds were more consistent with a blunt object beating rather than a pistol whipping, which had been testified to by multiple witnesses in the case. I got to watch that film with you. Yes. The first hour is very uh, late 50s, early 60s. It's very like beatnik. You're kind of following Barbara around and she's going to parties. You're just kind of getting an idea of her like nefarious lifestyle, if you will. But yeah, that last hour of watching her start to walk out to the gas chamber and panic and they're like, oh, there's a stay. And you can tell like the humanity is still there, you know, that the guards don't want to be doing that. The nurse that sits with her for two days doesn't want her to have to go do, you know. Yeah, it seemed like everyone who was physically or or like in the same room as her yeah. had a lot more empathy for her. And when they show the guards, the guards are just like mechanically doing this thing. Yeah. Like they've removed themselves from it. Yeah, it's like, well, we don't want to, but you did a, you did a bad thing, so we have to do this. And so, yeah, it was really hard to watch. I remember you and I both, I think it was like later that night or the next morning, we were both like, oh, we feel weird. Like, we feel kind of gross and weird. And then we're like, oh, that movie. Like, it really had an effect on both of us. It was pretty realistic then. Yeah, and it was just that slow. It was the drawn out. It was excruciating. Out, like, it, takes like tw- it feels like 20 minutes where they're preparing the death chamber. At that's least. interesting. And it's, it's like it's part of that story, though, mm-hmm. I think, because yeah. that's what life would be like exactly. at that point. It sound, I, would, I didn't see it, but it sounds very realistic. Because yeah, it reminded me a lot of Dancer in the Dark. I imagine having that job is a lot like that. You have to kind of lock up your emotions and just carry out your job. You know, it was just hard. All of it was hard to fathom. And the fact that... You really weren't sure if Barbara, how involved she was. It didn't Mm. make sense to have these guys that would be pinned for murders and stuff like these bad dudes. Yeah, she probably knocked on the door and got them inside and was planning on robbing it and all of that stuff. But the idea that she would snap and just start beating this woman with her cane when you have these two big dudes that would that probably had already done something like that in any case where there's multiple people i always wonder that because it's so easy to turn on each other and point fingers no one will know what really happened except for the people there for that film they used the journalist's letters like what he had received from barbara and their conversations and they don't really give you that answer but his whole thing towards the end is he keeps uh, pushing everyone to say, let me go talk to the guys because they can save her life. Maybe they can do one last good deed mm. and say, we killed her. Barbara only did the door and got us in the place. And they could have saved her life. And the whole time you're like, well, why wouldn't you do that? And then it's like, well, they're not doing it. 
So did she have more to do like, with it? Or are them? these just like super yeah. monsters? And there there was actually a detail that I didn't get into that I think it was Ed Montgomery that this is the journalist, that he wanted to talk to them leading up to their executions. Mm-hmm. And there was a large period of time where I believe the superintendent of that prison, it wasn't San Quentin, wherever they were before, mm. something like that would not allow them to do that because mm. I think they were starting to kind of say things like that, oh. which which cast doubt on the on the case. Because they I mean, could get an appeal exactly. or something. And then the judicial system looks bad, so we have to yep. just, let's yeah. just get rid of everybody. Well, that's terrible. But then eventually he did get to talk to him. That was the last thing I said in there. Is that, that and, and right. Perkins had more detail than anyone had ever, uh, details that no one had ever heard before. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so I think he did it. Well, it was a good, it was a good case for sure. Thank you. Burbank, man. Hold on, like, we hold don't on. know. We can't see. Quiet for a minute. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take it, tiger. Baby, Baby tiger. tiger. <laughs> or his jizz tower. <laughs> oh, I don't I'm know what that my is. Jizz tower. <laughs> is that the third movie of them, Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Hobbit jizz. And I meant fling like Science of the Lambs. Oh, Matt. What's yeah. his name? Multiple Migs. I can smell your cunt from here. Oh my God, you can! <laughs> <laughs> I washed it <laughs> yesternight. <laughs> Schmegma. Oh, <laughs> <boy>. <laughs> you are disgusting. Does anyone like that word? No. Probably the guy that named it. It's like his last name. Rudolph Schmegma. <laughs> He's like, oh, you guys, I told you not to use my name like that, please. Oh, is he, is he, uh, I almost said Nor'easter. Yeah, Nor- Norwegian. <laughs> he's just, you know, he's schmeg. Extra comma there threw me off. I'm like, Ron Burgundy, I have to read it. <laughs> I've done it too. <laughs> I did it with my parents. So did I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they call her Slotzilla. <laughs> I can't help it if I have a wide set vagina. You cunt. <laughs> wow. Jinx. Cunt jinx. <clears throat> you owe me a cunt. <laughs> My favorite afternoon snack. <laughs> no, sugar's bad. You can get a yeast. I don't care. It's not my pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and they sure do flop now that I only have nine toes. <laughs> <laughs> There's no grip for that flip. Uh, no, there isn't. I need a, a bigger a bigger thong area on my flip-flops. Double it up, triple it up. There's nothing there. I don't know why I thought I could pick something up with my feet. I can't even count to 10 with my feet. <laughs> <laughs> for any ladies out there that want to fit into a slimmer shoe, or gentlemen, anyone at all, just cut off one of your toes. <laughs> Cinderella style. I finally passed this level. <laughs> of what? Best means. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I've been trained for two days. Wait. <clears throat> okay. Fuck. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, I can tell you. I've got a list here on my phone. Hey. That <laughs> ain't nice. <laughs> Moved in along with her Labrador retreat. Moved in along with her Labrador retreat. Creepers. It's a hard word. Good Lord. Moved in along with her Labrador retreat. Whoa. Moved in along with her Labrador Retriever. Nope. You could just say dog. 
often moving about the white ranch-style home using a cane to aid her mobility. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Don't, don't knock on my door when I'm using my vacuum. Remember that movie? What? So much jizz. That's literally the only thing I remember from that film because the night before I watched it, my parents had rented it and they watched it in their room while I hung out with my friends in the living room. And the next day I watched it and I was horrified that they had seen a dude just so hard. It shot the girl into the ceiling. And that's all I remember. I mean, from that that's film. something they've probably seen before. <laughs> I've told you I don't want to hear about you and my dad. Okay. <laughs> Your mom's a petite woman. I can see her. Oh my God. I've heard enough of my family's sexual. It is our sexual... own skate performance. <laughs> Taking old, old faithful to the top. <laughs> Shelly, do you need help getting down? Oh <laughs> I have had it. So she's going to be stuck with she's it? Uh -huh. She needs a roommate? Oh God. <laughs> she needs a psychiatrist. With <laughs> which dispatched it Jesus Christ which dispatched oh my god which dispatched <laughs> the coverage of the trial focused <laughs> just lost all power yeah you did god. the lights went out which is what a what a 1950s way to say that huh yeah Cut out your foolishness of murdering folks and such. Burbank. Yeah. <laughs> Try Tommy's. They have the best chili burgers in town. Guaranteed diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> but worth it. We don't need any help with that around here. <laughs> that guarantee is already in place. That's right. We're the diarrhea triplets. <laughs> squirt, squirt, squirt. Squirt, squirt. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>